Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Kevin Bayuk, a partner and worker owner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Jenny Stefanati. LinkedIn will tell you that Jenny has, in her vocational journey, kind of experience in philanthropy, venture capital, enterprise work. She was lead in international work at Google and was head of development initiatives at Google.org. As a D school fellow at Stanford, and has co-founded a number of startups, um, is an advisor and or a board member for over a dozen others, both startups and some long tenured organizations, institutes, and enterprises. You'll, you'll also find that Jenny has done stints in management consulting and even participated in research at CERN one summer working on a neutrino <laughs> oscillation experiment. That was something I did not know, but it does not entirely surprise me either. Um, I know Jenny as a deep systems thinker. I first met Jenny through, and I know this will sound like a joke, a civics club initiated by our mutual friend, Ramin Sarabi. And in this group, we would meet over dinner and into the evening kind of collectively developed a more nuanced understanding of the role of civics, the political dynamics of the place we live, the opportunity space for transforming governance in general, and practical pragmatic steps for reform, reforming democratic process and enrolling others in participation. And I actually distinctly recall one evening in our discourse witnessing Jenny kind of deftly facilitate an exercise in some convergent analysis and it really made an impression on me. Um, I remember thinking, here's someone with a deep facility in design thinking. And I guess it's just a privilege to meet some people, when I get the chance to meet people who are real systems thinkers, seeing connections and just the, that ability to navigate between, you know, a broad 30,000 foot level view down to like nitty gritty details of human experience and or nuanced policy development minutiae. And I find that to be rare and something that I'm really attracted to. So I was very excited to learn about and participate in Jenny's newest endeavor, a community, a community called Denizen. And I'm excited for Jenny to tell us all more about it in a moment. And I just meet few people who are as animated by taking a first principles approach to understanding and articulating the potential opportunity space of a diverse array of topics from what that are important, at least important to me, economy, culture, technology, governance, and more. So Jenny is one of these people and has developed a fluency to recognize the patterns and connections that intersect across you know, those important domains. Jenny is also a kind and compassionate person, a caring mother, and an adept conversationalist. These, among other reasons, are why I'm very excited to have Jenny on the Next Economy Now podcast. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. That was very generous of you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thanks for being here. And, and what of your story, your personal story, would you want to share that brings you to the work that you're doing these days? Well, I think a lot of what brings me to the work that I'm doing is the heterogeneity of my story. And I think that circuitous path is part of what allows me to, to interrogate the topics in the way that we do. 
But if I'm going to draw out a couple of things that I think are particularly pertinent, there'd be two that I would highlight and the third that I think is also pretty important. But the first is just, you know, early in my career, kind of growing up and cutting my teeth in in management consulting, specifically doing strategy in Silicon Valley. It was at Google doing some really formative early years and 2004 to 2008, right after the IPO, when, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid and expanded Google internationally. The company grew from 2,500 to 25,000 employees. And so I did deep network in Silicon Valley. My husband, who I met at Google, is a, is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. So in addition to my time working in the big companies in the most sort of optimistic of the days of what the big companies were doing in the world, I've also had a front row seat to the startup ecosystem. And so that whole ethos of tech-driven change is something that I lived for quite some time. I left that because I just personally was not very interested in business. I was always reading on the side, you know, books about economics and things like The End of Poverty and Jeff Sachs and Bill Easterly and Amartya Sen. And that was the stuff that kept me up at night. So I left that and I the second part of my background that is really relevant is I went and I went to the Kennedy School. There's a program there called a master's in economics. Or it's actually called a master's in international development and master's, yeah, international development. But I always say it's in economics because it was really grounded in econ. And in fact, the alternative that I considered was getting an econ PhD. So you, you took rigorous micro, macro econometrics. It was designed by Jeff Sachs to be the preeminent program for development. And while we looked at how to improve lives in the developing world, you know, it's a very much what is the model for human progress, which is largely driven by economic growth. And we were really taught how to make economies grow more than anything else. And so I have this deep training in the mindset of economists. And I felt like you had to speak that language to sit at the table and sort of talk about these bigger issues of human progress. But I left that program pretty underwhelmed by the questions that we weren't asking. The first order questions about what does a just society look like and why is economic growth the path to get there? We were just kind of taught to make economies grow. We never questioned some of the some of the assumptions that neoclassical economics made that weren't exactly panning out. I was there in 2008, you know, when everything imploded. So much of what Denison is now is is kind of picking up where where Harvard left off. And all all I think the third part of my background that's relevant that we can talk to you when we talk about like how I think about the work and how I approach the work is just the, the fellowship of the design school. So learning human-centered design and learning how to think about innovation and work in a way that's really rooted in understanding who you're designing for and work in a way that's very non-linear and experimental and has feedback loops built in, I think is, was, was really transformative in how I thought about doing my work. And it's also an important part of what informs how I do what I do now. I love those themes of the curiosity and inquiry, discernment, but access, you know, on the front lines of seeing some of the pillars that have really now especially shaped society at large and then grounded in a design thinking, a human-centered design approach. That integration, I do see it so evident in the development of this endeavor, Denizen, which you describe, I think, accurately from my lived experience and, and presence as a community. Tell us more about maybe the origin story and, you know, how Denizen has evolved to what it is now today and what it might be in the near future as well. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so prior to Denizen, I left Harvard and I just missed being a geek. I missed reading white papers and talking about white papers. And I organized my first, you know, group that got together and geeked out <laughs> back then. And the civics group that you talked about was another group that happened to be not organized by me. But I have been doing this on and off for a decade. You know, I really felt like there were, I thought there were topics that were really important to understand that I had a hard time finding time to understand this. So I would periodically get my friends together and say, hey, everybody, let's talk about, you know, the state of psychedelics or, you know, I really want to understand universal basic income, things that we talked about. I was organizing that on and off for a decade. And the pandemic happened and suddenly everyone was talking about how this was the big moment for all of this systemic transformation that we've all been waiting for. And every time I tried to ask, you know, yeah, I think there's something really unique happening, but why? Nobody really had any good answers. And so I revived my geek squad, which you were among them. I sent out an email and I said, hey, everybody, this moment really has me thinking I'd love to do, you know, I've got this latent inquiry, latent from my Harvard days. Let's get together and, you know, do a two-part conversation at the very least on capitalism and inequality and universal basic income. That was what my first email said. That that hit your inbox. And a lot of people were interested in that conversation. And I also said, you know, no promises, but we might have some amazing guests because after the years of, of Harvard and Google and Silicon Valley, I just, you know, I had a pretty incredible network. And so it was, you know, fairly likely that any given conversation, there would be somebody that I knew or somebody that somebody else knew who was at the forefront of that work that could help us understand those topics. And so that was where it started. And lo and behold, we had really incredible guests, sometimes multiple incredible guests, world-class panels for a conversation. So, you know, Twitter labeled Trump tweets. I said, oh, I really wanted to understand content moderation better. And we had Tristan Harris and Rob Reich, who teaches tech and ethics at Stanford, and Rob Goldman, who was the head of product at Facebook when it got weaponized. I mean, this was like an incredible panel with three different perspectives. And this was just our little intimate group of 20 to 30 of us that would get together. And so right about then, this app called Clubhouse was just starting. At the time, it was a couple thousand people. I actually knew the CEO from my time at Google. So... I was on it, but not using it. But some of the other people in the community said, you should get on this app because these are really important conversations and I'm talking about what I'm learning there and I think you should move them there. So, you know, using my design thinking hat, it's like, okay. I had kept it really intimate so we could have conversations. And I said, let's let's go to Clubhouse. And the other thing that was interesting was I, you know, I've been making these really robust emails for everybody that teed up the topics and gave optional reading and then summarized them. And I noticed that some people were never coming to the conversations. And I asked them if they wanted me to take them off my email list because I didn't want to spam them. And they said, no, I'm learning so much from your emails. I just don't have time to go, but can you record your conversations? I'd love to like hear them. So it was just this moment of realizing that this need was much greater than just me wanting a commitment device to learn these things. And so we shifted over to Clubhouse. I threw up a website that summarized the past conversations so people could kind of catch up to the inquiry. And the whole thing just unexpectedly absolutely took off from there. So over the course of several years now, you know, our total reach on Clubhouse is 85,000 at this point. But the conversations have been really a magnet for this community to coalesce around it, which originally started with 
my friends, but then it was friends bringing friends in. Like I think you brought in Derek Razo, for example, who is at the helm of purpose. It was amazing. And that's also when I knew when we were onto something, Derek came for that one conversation. Then he said, like, this is amazing. What's next? I want to come to the next one. Same with Michelle Green from Long-Term Stock Exchange on stakeholder capitalism. And so the conversation just became a magnet for people who are working on these topics that had this intellectual curiosity. They wanted to be provoked in their thinking. They wanted to be thinking about these sort of adjacent topics to the work that they were doing. And the you know, I was obviously primarily interested in interrogating capitalism as an extension of my time at the Kennedy School. But there was really a, you know, when you're talking about systems, it's a, it's a more complex conversation to be had. And so, you know, we talked about technology and content moderation, but we're really understanding that because it has these profound implications for democracy and how we make sense of reality and just looking at, you know, how power is distributed in society. And so, and so the scope of the conversation sort of extended into these other topics around consciousness and culture and how cultural change happens and how that relates to political change. But, but I always tried to keep the scope, you know, not so much in current events, but in this sort of foundational conversation. And I've also always tried to make it really easy for, for people to walk away with a pretty good high level understanding of a topic in a single conversation. So a lot of what I do is just the heavy lifting. Like I'll read the report that got prepared for Congress on content moderation and I'll summarize it for you in two minutes, you know, or five minutes. And then if you want to go down the rabbit hole, here's the link to that on the website. So that's the kind of story. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. And what an amazing contribution to the community on that last piece. Like those summaries are not just a summary for a simple understanding maybe one narrow aspect, you're able to do the summary in a way that is synthetic of those other topics. So content moderation, social media, you mentioned touches on democracy, governance, the economy, and in culture in general. And those weaving those together, I find that to be just rare or maybe unique in terms of how, where there's a community to discourse around diverse topics, but in a way that's integrative or integrated. I wish it was more common, of course, but it is rare. But I just say a lot of the service I provide is being able to synthesize it. I think from the, you know, the years of doing management consulting and just thinking about complex topics and distilling them down into frameworks to make sense of them and then integrating them. It's just, yeah, it's making it accessible, right? But I think an important point because we've grappled with this is that you know, we try not to speak in code and we try to make complex things accessible. Like I, I used to blog when I was in grad school and I got a lot of traction on my blog. I think one of the things that I'm able to do is just to take things that are often in, you know, less accessible academic terms and make them grokkable by a wider audience, but we don't aim too low, right? So it's still, it's still a level of rigor that is valuable to people who work professionally in the space for example. They're complex topics. And so there's a necessity, I think, to explicate the nuance to have a greater understanding, but making it accessible is definitely as much an art as it is a science. And I think you thread that needle really well. Yeah. And, you know, we've been saying, you know, we've been recording the conversations from the beginning because of the people who weren't there that wanted to hear them. And now we have this archive of 
I don't know, 50 to 100 conversations across all of these topics. And it's always been an obvious thing to launch a podcast. So we're finally, finally launching the podcast to, to make those more accessible to a wider audience. And then I think alongside that media piece is really the community piece where, you know, a lot of people in the community are working at the forefront of the conversations that we talk about and we think about, you know, how can we forge ties and support each other's work and even just have a community where we feel like we're, you know, less alone in, in the work that we're doing in the world. Endeavoring to start or grow a community that has gathered emergently around the the experiments and offerings that you that, that you just shared and kind of the origin story for Denizen, a critical success factor of any community is a sense of shared values and aligning on those values explicitly. Can you tell us a little bit about the process you've gone through to evolve a set of values with this community? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting in that moment when things started to take off on Clubhouse. I instinctively was drawn to articulate what Dent at the time, now Denizen, is and then figure out what our shared values were. I didn't feel compelled to write a mission statement or articulate a vision at that time. We have since, but at the time, that was just instinct. And so we co-created a set of values with the community and a couple of paragraphs that articulated what we were. And it was a really incredible, I think one of my proudest moments of my career at the time, just getting all these incredible humans together to to articulate, you know, what we were about and, and produce something that was really reflective of a collective creation process. And I still have that Google Doc with all of the comments from all of the humans. I think I'm sure you're in there somewhere at, that we made at the time. So the values then that we came up with were curiosity, generosity, diversity, and integrity. Curiosity being the, the thing that really brought us together, but also really thinking about holding the frame of curiosity in conversations where we have different points of view and trying to uncover our biases and trying to, you know, not be right, but, but find common ground and learn from one another. Generosity was just so, so, so much what it was founded on by it being just a gift from me. I mean, at times I was working, I was doing three conversations a week and working 40 plus hours a week, but I was always a gift. And that gift is really, I think, help to define our culture and our ethos and something really special. And I think we also want our values to reflect the society that we're trying to manifest. And so this orientation of generosity versus, you know, taking care of oneself, first and foremost, that is really, you know, amplified in the current economy. And then diversity was just always really important to me because how can you talk about a next society without having a diversity of voices at the table? That's always been a tough one for us because it was my network that, you know, we led with, which was disproportionately you know, privileged and white given my background. That continues to be something where we really have to push ourselves to get better at. And then integrity is really an important one because this is about living in integrity with the things that we're talking about. So how do we, as best as we can, align with the system that we talk about in our consumption decisions, our employment decisions, our, you know, the way that we show up in our family lives, in our communities, et cetera. And then subsequently, we have added two more values, humility, which seems so obvious and was always important. And in fact, our original name, Dent, was a, it connoted doing big things with humility. So humility was really important. And 
I know we'll talk about Danella Meadows a little bit. I mean, that's one of the things I loved so much about her was how humble she was. And then lastly, we just added just recently accountability. And this one actually came from Jeff Orlowski, the director of The Social Dilemma. And I'm sure most people have seen it, a founder of Exposure Labs. And we were having a conversation about some of the things that he's done Exposure Labs around anti-oppression and just how important accountability was in conjunction with a set of values and integrity. Like how do we compassionately hold ourselves accountable for what we're trying to do, acknowledging how hard it is. And interestingly, at the retreat that we just had a few weeks ago, when I talked about, you know, what does Denizen give to you or why do you come back? You know, a lot of people talked about it as a space where they can really be challenged and grow as humans in a multifaceted way while being held in a community that sees them as whole humans and cares for them as whole humans and sort of accepts the messiness of the work. I love so that. So those are the those are the six values. Yeah. Yeah. I love the additions and of course the evolution, the evident evolution that they're they're being added to through collaborative dialogue and community. And you mentioned the retreat. I definitely have recognized in the Denizen community this high warmth but also there is a challenge. There's a challenge or a pushing cognitive abrasion, even just the synthetic work you do of cross-domain type of learning and integration of thinking. It is That is, in itself is challenging. And then adding on to this idea of a value of personal integrity with accountability, it, like you said, it's indicative of the, the culture and society that Denizen is a partner in engendering and developing. Yeah, in that first paragraph that we wrote back then, I actually said, Dent is an experiment in connection and provocation. And I like the word provocation, but a lot of people can note that as being a little bit more like antagonistic. But I do want to, you know, provoke a questioning of the things that we take for granted and a widening of the lens of the work that we do. And so, yeah, that challenging in a way that's coupled with being nurturing and caring, I think is a very interesting and important tension that Denison holds. Fully agreed. And it becomes, it definitely speaks through in the interviewing and the writing and the media and the content that you produce. Um, You might be talking to a Facebook executive, but the way in which you are able to get down to first principles or provide a provocation or a challenge it doesn't come across as overly abrasive or marginalizing. It's trying to advance the dialogue in one of those panels where you have maybe a professor from Stanford with the, you know somebody who's more of a social activist. And the way you curate that dialogue, I think, honors those values. So I definitely see, even though the values came together as part of a communitarian effort to describe what Denison is about, I see how you live into those already in in the content that you produce. One of the things that struck me as interesting is that as Denizen has evolved, there's this uh, evolutionary component to it or emerging component to it, which, you know, given your experience in Silicon Valley where the MVP type thinking is pedestalized as, uh, well, there's certainly the move fast and break things, but definitely the idea of experiment Tell me about how Denizen honors this like testing or experiment and iteration, developing a hypothesis. How does that show up in the way the community has evolved and might continue to evolve? Yeah, I mean, Denizen became what it has 
as the broader need and opportunity revealed itself for me. I would have never set out to hold this space and hold this conversation and certainly not, you know, I use the word steward for my title and my role, steward a community of such remarkable leaders in the space. It's extraordinarily humbling to hold that role. And so I really just try to sense what the needs are and try new things. And, you know, those things don't always stick, but, you know, so example, people ask for the recordings, right? Now we have the recordings and then people is like, oh, you know, could you put it on SoundCloud or not something other than SoundCloud? Can you put it on Spotify? You know, and so I didn't set out to do a podcast. The podcast came in response to the needs that they emerged themselves. So our first retreat was an experiment. I just, you know, it seemed natural to me that we would bring these together, be people together in person to deepen community ties. But it wasn't clear to me that there would be another one after the first one. And then everybody was just came out of it so energized. And, you know, it seemed clear that there was a value proposition there. Right now, you know, we, we experiment with doing book clubs. Right now we're experimenting with our first online course for the community. I organized a private nonviolent communication course for the denizen community. We've never done anything like that before. And so that's a, you know, that's a, hey, these are things that I feel like I want to be learning. You know, and we talk about wanting well, to walk the walk and do the work on ourselves. Here's an opportunity to do the work. Let's see how that feels, you know, and just trying to stay abreast on needs. But, you know, there, we experimented with a virtual space as our sort of community home base and people just didn't want to switch to a new platform. So that was an experiment that just didn't seem to pan out. Turns out that we experiment with signal groups. People like connecting on signal. That's a better, even though it's a functionally inferior that, you know, and so, yeah, just always trying something new and not what a lot of times people, you know, what's your strategy? What's your plan? What's your, are you going to execute on? And I just, I've enjoyed having the ability to be more emergent with what we do. We've also done, you know, so sorry, some other interesting experiments that we've done is, you know, when I get invited to speak at a conference, I will drop into a city and I will get free tickets to the community or discounted tickets to the community. And then we'll coalesce and we'll both, you know, get to have a shared experience that's a provocative learning experience, but we'll also deepen community ties there. I've also done some experiments where I've co-programmed but not really done all the producing or taken any financial risk around events. And so those give us opportunities to, to try new things in ways that are lightweight in terms of what they're asking from me and the team. And so this embracing of emergence and being responsive to needs, iterating and evolving the, what the community does and how it is together, is that at all intention with something that I frequently see in your writing and in your dialogue when you cite Danella Meadows, the, the work of great work of Dana Meadows on change, transformation, the levers for change, just very insightful analysis and, of course, frameworks around change and transformation that I think sometimes is maybe pigeonholed into having a strategy of where in the system do you see the lever, have a strategy or a theory of change according to those levers. And so that speaks to maybe a planning and strategy. And that might be how people interpret some of Dana's work rather than what she was saying. But do you see it? Do you notice a tension there with Denison of like being responsive to no. needs and being emerging? Okay, no, mm. tell me. So I'll tell you why. And Danella Meadows is so 
amazing and so inspired by her. I hadn't heard of her before I started to do this work and she resonates so deeply. I think it's actually very much aligned with her approach. So I, I haven't talked about what I think is some of the more exciting opportunities with Denison that haven't really come to fruition yet. But this is seeing emergent collective strategic opportunities to act across the community. So an example where this happened was you know, someone in the community was supporting some philanthropic efforts towards the next economy. And there were funders that were saying that they didn't really see opportunities to allocate capital. And that was like, I can bring together 15 people and we can have a killer conversation. And in that conversation, we can develop a framework for how to think about allocating that capital and give you specific opportunity. I mean, it would take not very much time, <laughs> right? And so we actually did get a handful of us together to, to have a very you know lightweight round table. But that could easily translate into a weekend where we really rolled up our sleeves and outputted a white paper that could be very helpful for thinking about a strategic philanthropic approach to the next economy. And I think the, the heterogeneity of the community and the perspectives that could be represented, we could do design sprint and do that. So I think you know, there's a theory of change that I hold around being in alignment with the new system, with the work that we do, that we're complicit in the system that we're trying to change by virtue of, you know, where'd you buy that from, you know, or where do you bank or who do you work for? And we can think about all of those things being more aligned. Like I, I bank with beneficial state bank because it invests in the local community and because of how it's governed, you know, how Denizen is structured as an entity, right? Um, how it's governed. All of those things are, are ways in which I think from a theory of change perspective, we can all kind of, you know, it's a Buckminster quote that's very famous about, you know, you don't fight the existing system. You design the new system to make the old one obsolete, coupled with the Gandhi's be the change you wish to see in the world. Like we just all did this. We would de-resource the system and manifest something new. And, in, you know, but we have to answer the first order question of what does that new system look like? And that's a lot of what the conversation is trying to explore. And then also a really critical question of how do you transition from where we are now to there and what does that look like? And, and, you know, are there marginal spaces that we need to pass through for cultural change? And there's a lot of complexity there. So I hold this sort of theory of change around alignment in all of the ways that we show up in the world. But I also think that there are strategic and leverage opportunities for collective action that are very much emergent. So, so that was one example. You know, but some people may be working on something that's looking at, you know, a policy opportunity, and that can be coupled with people who are doing things related to cultural change. Or, you know, there's a significant collective awareness opportunity that someone is fostering, whether that be through film or, you know, some other sort of a media play. And how can we couple that with, other interventions to amplify that impact. I don't want to speak to some particulars because I can't, but you know, there are a number of very emergent opportunities for us as a community being aware of each other's work to better act in resonance towards these collective goals. And so that's the ways in which, you know, the strategic hat enables you to know that that's a leverage point right? And act there. But the designer's emergent hat enables you to know, I can't tell you what those interventions are. I can tell you my theory of change. And I actually see this all the time, Kevin, 
where people who are working in the system change space will come to me frustrated about the urgency of the situation and say, what's the plan? And my response is, I can't give you a plan. I can give you an approach, you know, and I can be strategic, highly strategic and confident about the strategic effectiveness of a particular intervention, but I can't tell you what those things are going to be. Make sense? Totally makes sense. And that totally resolves the tension. You can have a strategic analysis of what would be effective or relative efficacy based on the work of Danella Meadows and other thinkers and just analysis in general. And you could say at the same time from a design perspective that we can have an approach that is emergent and responsive and determined by needs and modeling. And I think the community does that as a whole as well in even the way Denizen, I mean, Lift Economy is a partner of Denizen in the way that we think about mutuality and collaboration. Denizen is helping, you know, share about some of our initiatives within the community. And in turn, you know, we'd like to introduce uh, people to the Denizen community to help inform, like bring Derek Razo to the conversation as just an example from our network. And so I see Denison itself as like that, you know, navigating that tension or resolving that tension through those two approaches, even through modeling. Is there more you want to say about how Denison is approaching this mutuality or this kind of collaborative impact model or approach to the, the community's work? Yeah, I mean, I think that this was happening very organically early on, where, you know, Amanda Joy Ravenhill and Faith Flanagan from the Buckminster Fuller Institute are part of the community. They have their next Trim Tab Space Camp. I tell everybody about it, you know, or I say, oh, I like, you know, somebody says, I'd like to have a conversation about X. And then I say, I don't know anybody that knows about that. Does anybody else? And then they say, oh, yeah, let me introduce you to so-and-so. And I just always have naturally framed Denizen as our thing, not my thing. And wanted to be responsive to the request of the community and use it as a resource. You know, it, it, oh, another example of a, you know, response to need experiment, which is still, you know, the jury's still out on it. But I would often have guests come back to me and say, oh, hey, I've got this incredible job opening. <laughs> you know, it's usually like an amazing senior position in an org doing such impactful work on this topic that we just talked about. And then, of course, the Denison community is a pretty incredible talent pool or knows, you know, a lot of really amazing people. And so, you know, I would put that in the new emails, but then I actually threw up a job board, which just drops in all of these organizations that are in the community and adjacent to the community, at the forefront of the work and just aggregates job opportunities. So we have that job board. I don't think it's gotten much use or traction. Maybe now that we, you know, if we scale up our audience with the podcast, but that's there. That's an experiment that I would say is, is not quite a successful one, but I'm not ready to let it go yet. Sense of respond, right? So get, get some feedback and data and see what happens and then follow yeah. the need grounded in a strategy of a lever for change. I love that. Like, yeah. but, but to your point about the cooperative nature of this, so what was organically happening is that we were just supporting the work of people in the community with, with Denizen as a community and as a, you know, a wider audience with the newsletter. And so now that we are launching the podcast and we're about to put forth a, you know, an updated website, a whole new brand identity, we have been formalizing partnerships with orgs like the Lyft Economy. So we're just now saying, okay, let's just be, you know, a little bit more structured about this. So once a quarter, let's meet, let's talk about what your respective, you know, where you're at and where we're at and how we can support each other's work. And I just really see Denizen and its resources as resources for all of our work. And I think that does 
for me, that models a cooperative economy versus a competitive one. A lot of us are fundraising or trying to, you know, but, but like, you know, a lot of us are trying to hire, but I really see us as a broader collective entity working towards common goals with porousness across us. So I had somebody that was working for me and she was volunteering, but we were working very closely together. And then she got an opportunity to go work for an adjacent organization. And we had a conversation where I, I met her as a dear friend, not as a resource for me. And, you know, we determined that the best thing for her to do is go and take that other job. And I think that's, you know, that's what I try to model in the way that we think about cooperation and partnership. I love it. The humility and the generosity and the integrity to honor the, the need. Obviously, we need a pluralistic, broad-based movement to enact the changes that are necessary for a livable future and a, a thriving society. So of all the themes that Denizen has covered, which is there's a great list even on the website, becomingdenizen.com. And I've learned so much about whether it's universal basic income, delegative democracy, the risks to the epistemic commons, the, um, of course, stakeholder capitalism and themes that are very close to the heart of lift economy. But I'm curious, what's grabbing your attention now, you know, here in fall of 2020? Two, um, curious what's just really alive in you, if there's anything. I know that we're, we're both broad and, and expansive and, and attracted to many things as generalists, but is there anything that's really grabbing you these days? I mean, to some extent, I'm just properly getting back online from an intellectual front. I had a very big year in my personal life. And that was a really important moment for the work in a very unexpected way. So both my parents died within three months of each other and I was completely decimated and unable to function and just completely stopped all the work for six months. And there was such an incredible amount of support from everyone in the community as I passed through that. And as I stepped away from the work, which is so hard to do, even in a work that was fully done as a gift like this, I was really comforted by some of the things that I've read from Charles Eisenstein that talked about talked about a world where, you know, our leaders that are working on our most important problems don't stop to, you know, take care of their parents on their during their final days because they're so hell bent on, you know, devoting themselves to the cause. And that that's not the world that we want to move towards, where we're not instruments for something, but we're whole humans. And so, you know, I felt like my work was not doing the direct work of Denizen in that moment, it was actually having the courage to step away and say, this whole thing might not be here when I come back, but this is where I need to be. And the community being so supportive of that, I felt like was us as a whole modeling the world that we want to move towards. And so I've stepped back into the work for the last couple of months, but a lot of that has been doing the stuff on the back end and prepping for the podcast and making the retreat happen. And so it's just actually right now that I'm stepping into a fresh kind of place in the inquiry. And I'm very excited because as you know, that's what really lights me up. And there's a lot of effusive, hopefully contagious enthusiasm that comes out in those conversations. So what's it? I actually have a post-it note right here on my computer. What's at the top of my list? Some of this is a little bit dry, but it gets me excited. Modern monetary theory, 
is a key economic concept that I don't fully understand, but we were thinking about that, particularly as it relates to funding things like universal basic income. I think that's a really important one to understand. We have a really great guest lined up. I'm excited to roll up my sleeves and dig into that. Rights of nature economic frameworks is it also, an, are you familiar with that? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I yeah. think we've had, we, we, go ahead. Yeah, we've, we've been thinking about that and, and still want to learn more. I'm very interested in going deep on that and understanding how we can think about, you know, building rights of nature into law and how that might work in practice. I want to pick up some conversations in the psychedelic space we haven't had for a while. I just actually got off a call with one of our partners there, North Star. They're about to release a business guide. And so I'm excited to have a conversation about how they're thinking about shaping the incentives in for-profit business in the psychedelic space. I think that's such an important topic. So that's top of mind. I'm really excited about this nonviolent communication course that we're doing and, and having a conversation with Danny who is running it with, that's really tying this sort of macro to the micro. How does this, this sort of invisible paradigms of, you know, separation and individuality manifest in the way that we speak to each other and that we interact with each other and we, you know, respond in moments of conflict and how can we break those down in the work? So the end of the course, I'm excited to have a conversation that really kind of up levels that, but also grounds it in the work. And then there's a really amazing person in the community who is doing some deep thinking about trust and how important trust is to repair the fabric of society and build from there. He's young in his twenties and one of the most wise people I've ever met. And so I'm excited to both read his paper and have a conversation with him. There's so many good topics. That's the problem. There's just so many good things and so many time. You know, we're also partnering with Mobius and they do a lot of really important space and like liberation tech. And so we're looking at co-curating and co-hosting some conversations with them as well. So, you know, all over the place. I also just started reading Jason Hickel's Less is More on degrowth. I'm very excited to see if there's any new insights from him around sort of post-growth economy in his work. Those will be like kind of, I think, nuances and filling in some dots from the current understanding. But those are the things that are alive for me at the moment. I can tell how those topics, just even foreshadowing what's forthcoming for Denizen Conversations, uh, brings you alive and definitely excites me. I, I get totally stimulated by what I know, what you're excited about exploring. But I did want to honor also that sharing some of your personal experience that given your own life experience and your reflections on care for family, death and dying, grieving, vulnerability, you did model an impressive amount of strength by being vulnerable, sharing with this emerging community that in some ways had just started, but you talk about modeling trust as well, trusting the community to to actually allow you to be held in some ways or be honored and, and then have conversations. You, you didn't stop at just that. You actually facilitated and curated conversations around death and dying, grief, holding each other, our roles as family members, as human beings. And I just, if somebody listening to this thinks of Denizen, they're like, oh, MMT and UBI and like, you know, macroeconomic theory or something like that. There's all so much bridging that happens in these dialogues, you know, and I, I miss some of them because I'm busy too. I'm excited for the podcast. So maybe I could catch off uh, offline stuff that I missed in Clubhouse. But those conversations were ones that I checked out because 
those are conversations that aren't being had by and large. Mm. Um, I really want to appreciate you yeah. doing that. Yeah, there's a really good one that'll come out very soon with Jordan Hall on parenting. And we talk about how important prioritizing parenting is for this work. And I remember in a subsequent interview, Jordan said it's the thing that he's most proud of that he's talked about and that no one else has asked him about it. Because we don't value staying home with your kids. And that's a really important part of my story that we didn't talk about, which is I largely stayed home with my kids for many years when they were very young. And sort of the antithesis to leaning in, I, I wrote a blog post that I didn't lean in, I pushed back. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I stand up for taking that time to, to be with your kids. I also just stand up for parents having choice and doing what feels right for them. But that is a very important part of the story. For sure. Most definitely. And who knows? Maybe the most important part we don't know, right? It's all important. It's all valuable in terms well, of... Well, the story, yeah. The story of Dennis and my story. You know, I really, yes. I really uh, yeah, I push back on, on some of the the narrative around how much of our identity should be wrapped up in our career success. Well, I know maybe we've nuanced the word provocation or provocative, but I want to acknowledge the courage that I see you representing to do that, to push back on cultural myths of normality, the mainstream traps of business as usual capitalism, and not being afraid to take a first principles approach and have a compassionate and warm dialogue that is accessible. I think it's very important and with, you know, and largely missing in our epistemic commons, if you will, our ability to understand what's going on. So Denizen, I, I believe, is playing an important role. Lift Economy believes is playing an important role. And we're glad and honored to be partnered with you and really, really grateful that you took the time to share about what's going on. Is there anything else you want to say before we sign off for this uh, episode about Denizen and, and what you're holding? I mean, just that I am equally honored to get to do this work with you and to support your work. And you've been at it for a long time and you've contributed immensely to Denizen with your presence and the permaculture conversation that we will be releasing in the not too distant future. And, you know, the work that you're doing is so important. And I've been so, as I've told you, I've just been so impressed by the curation of your podcast and the conversations that you're having and the voices that you're elevating. So it's certainly an honor to be amongst the people that you have chosen to talk here. So thank you. Thank you, Jenny. And I'll drop some links in the notes to this recording, but just extremely grateful and looking forward to continued collaboration. Thank you so much. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.